Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to this week's edition of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. It's episode 152, and it's our World, Ser- World Series preview. World Series preview. Is that right? Sure, World Series preview? World Series preview. Okay, it's our World Series preview. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Greg Karam. Greg, Ruben Tejada gave his Mets teammates engraved bottles of Johnny Walker Blue after they won the NLCS. So what bottle of alcohol would you like a Mets player to endorse? Well, I, I'm going to go with champ- like some kind of champagne, I think, in light of all the uh, champagne bottles that have been popped these days. So, I, I mean, let's go with like David Wright uh, promoting what's, what's a good champagne. I don't even you don't know. Drink Corbell? I don't drink a lot of champagne. Yeah. <laughs> Brute? I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, I just think that you could come up with a good uh, ad campaign with a Mets player for that. 
I guess I would be fine with like Ruben Tejada doing Johnny Walker blue ads, like those really annoying uh, 1800 ads with Christopher Christopher from The Sopranos. Yeah. It's just like Ruben Tejada with like his feet up on a desk and like a full suit. <laughs> with the cast on his leg. With the cast on his leg, yeah. I mean, great, you got to jump on that. Hey, you know, I, I look at it this way, and uh, somebody pointed this out to me. It's not like, you know, if he gets 100 grand for this, good for him. Get some money. Yeah. Yeah. You know, how many opportunities are like fringy Mets players going to have to cash in on their fame? Such as I, it is. Yeah. Well, look, they're all, I mean, Wilmer Flores is famous now. Wilmer you know? Flores, yes, was <laughs> on is... Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, there were four Mets. Yeah, you're making, you're, making, you're making your guest list. And that's like a normal thing that happens. You know, a big New York team gets in the World Series. They're going to go on late night. Same, you know, if it's an L.A. team, I'll probably show up on, uh, well, who films out in L.A. now? Um, somebody must, right? Well, Jimmy Kimmel does. Okay, well, Jimmy Kimmel does. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you go on late night. That's what you do. Um, and, yeah, just uh, DeGrom, Harvey, Wright. Sure, all those dudes. And Wilmer Flores. It was, I, I watched it and I enjoyed it. <laughs> Someone made the joke on Twitter that Wilmer Flores spoke better English than either of the pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Harvey spoke at all, actually. He talked a little bit. My favorite Harvey moment, though, is when they all went to the Islanders game. And there's a photo of them with all the Islanders shirt. And it's like Harvey is pretending he's not. Uh, <laughs> he wanted nothing to do with it. He's not there. I, I enjoy his, I'm, not, I'm a Devils fan. But I enjoy Harvey's diehard Ranger uh, fandom. Well, I think you can, like, sort of, uh, as an outsider, as a fan, sort of identify with it more. Because, you know, like, all these guys, you know, there's a, a big deal about Harvey growing up a Yankees fan. Yeah, fine. You know, Zach Wheeler and Jacob deGrom grew up Braves fans. Who cares? It's, you know, it's where you grow up. Yeah, but, but like, once you once you become a player, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that fandom kind of goes out the window. Right, it's a business. But for Harvey to still sort of hold on to that... You know, vestige of when he was a young, a young lad. Yeah. Just like, like really, David, like, David it's Wright, like, David it's like, I, a I, giant I, fan. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm not going to rehab in Florida like the team wants me to because I want to see Rangers games. <laughs> it's, it makes no <laughs> sense logically, and I kind of appreciate that. Um, to answer the actual question, uh, Daniel Murphy, a blue-collar guy, I think him for uh, PBR. Like Pass blue ribbon, like really, like it's like it's like Daniel Murphy, like working in a steel mill and then having a PBR. You do all it's like all these different blue collar jobs. So he works uh, in a steel mill. You know, he uh, construction, maybe like a construction site. It's like Daniel Murphy uh, takes off his hard hat. Yeah, it's like so. It's like Daniel Murphy, Wilmer Flores, and like uh, Juan Uribe all work in the construction site. They take off their hard hat at lunch and like whistle up some ladies and then. Daniel Murphy has a PBR. Yeah, I see this working. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that could work. What other blue-collar jobs are there left in the United States? Hashtag no politics. Um, <laughs> I'm running out of examples here. Car manufacturing, like that. No, it works. Yeah. I'm a good campaign. Any kind, of, any kind of construction. Yeah. So, Greg, the Mets are in the World Series against the Kansas City Royals. Starts on I, Tuesday. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon. You, uh, you you prepared for this podcast in an unusual way. When you called up, you were listening to the tenth inning of the games of Game Six of the 1986 World Series. I was, I was. It's on YouTube. I just wanted to rewatch it. I watched the whole tenth inning, 
and it's just it was it was remarkable. I mean, even though I've seen it before, and I mean, I wasn't alive for it, but I've seen replays of it. It's just so amazing how they were down to you know their last out. The Red Sox were practically celebrating on the field, and they were just able to come back. I don't know. That just got me very excited for uh, the podcast preview. And that is what we are doing on episode 152 later in the show. Andy McCullough, who you may remember from such podcasts as very early editions of this one, will be on the show. He's the beat writer for the Kansas City Star. We'll help preview the Royals' end of things. And once again, a return engagement. We couldn't get anybody else. David Roth. I mean that in a good way, not that we literally couldn't get anybody else. <laughs> David Roth from Vice Sports will be on to uh, sort of check the temperature, see how we're all see how we're all doing. We'll kick things off with the most recent Mets news. They've officially announced their World Series rotation. Matt Harvey takes the ball in Game One, followed by Jacob Degrom, Noah Syndergaard, and Stephen Matz. The stated reason being Harvey's on turn. Having been scheduled for Game 5 of the NLCS, if necessary, it wasn't. Which means he'll pitch Games 1 and 5, 2 and 6 for DeGrom, Noah Syndergaard for 7. Thoughts, Greg Karam? I have no problem with this. I think it's I think it's good. I actually, was. I, it seemed like it leaked out that early that it was going to be DeGrom, Syndergaard, Harvey, uh, which I thought made sense in its own way because you want to limit Harvey with all the inning stuff, but... You know, if I really had one game, and I really wanted, you know, who do, who do I think is the, like the best pitcher in the staff? I still think is probably Harvey. I think he has the best stuff throughout all of his pitches, and so it gave me a little bit of a excitement to know that he was going to be the first starter, and also that he, he was willing to do it, and uh, which means he's basically going to pitch twice. That made me happy. Um, so I like it. I have no problems with it. I mean, in that hypothetical, I might take Degrom over Harvey, but it's you know it's just tough to quibble. You've got three frontline starters. Yeah, I think that order, right now, order I think them how right, you want. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. And I think that right now, Degrom, the last couple outings, you know, he's looked a little tired. Uh, the stuff hasn't been that great. Although, I mean. It's been bad early, but he's he's recovered nicely and been able to you know give you six seven innings of uh, quality start. But I mean, I guess my concern with Degrom it, would be that if if he if that continues, I don't know if it's a blip or if it's something else. You know, he gets a full he's gotten a full turn of rest essentially going into his game two start on Wednesday. But you know, the Royals are the type of lineup that can make him pay. I think he was able to get big strikeouts when he needed against the Cubs and the Dodgers. And that Royals team just doesn't swing and miss. I know. That's scary. They put balls in play. I mean, yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to get hits when they do that, but it just makes me a little more nervous. But again, it's, you know, whatever. Um, You know, CJ Nikowski wrote a little bit about this at Fox Sports. He thinks they should set up uh, Harvey for three and seven. And I get that, but I think you have to approach it. And first of all, if this series goes seven, we're all going to be dead. Like, we will not make it through a seven game World Series. So. I'm not even worried looking that far ahead at this point. But Game 7 is his own animal. You know, Syndergaard airing it out two times to the order, that's fine in that spot. It's going to be all hands on deck anyway. Um, and with Syndergaard on the, on the mound, I don't expect Terry to sort of walk the tightrope like he did with DeGrom in Game 5 of the Dodger series. 
I think for me, it's like you look at it. If they're down 3-1, you want Harvey and DeGrom going the next two games to get you back in it. If you're down 3-0, it's like whatever. That that happens, you know, you tip your cap because you don't come back from that. But if you're down 3-1 and you need to win the next three, you know, having Harvey and DeGrom set up for that I think is good. Uh, having DeGrom for six, which could be a big game, it's sort of like the hidden... Because that's the game where it's not really all hands on deck and you kind of want your best starter going, I think. All right. Uh, so I don't have a problem with it in, in that respect. So if, I mean, if it gets to seven, Syndergaard starts, and then it's all hands on deck other than DeGrom, basically, who would have pitched the day before. But Harvey yeah. will be available. Mats will be available. Whoever right. in the pen will be available for however many innings you need them to throw. Yeah. Um, and I know there's some, like, Nikowski's one of his thesis was, well, is Harvey really going to be available for game seven? He's thrown more innings than they want him to even the Mets wanted him to let alone whatever Boris and the Harvey camp wanted here's the thing and nobody's talking about it and that's fine uh you know Bob Nightingale dumped it into like the notes end of a USA Today piece a few weeks ago Harvey has insurance on his arm now right so he's gonna air it out because it doesn't matter to him I assume the premium is pretty cheap because he's still fairly close to the surgery and if you look at the failure rates on Tommy John he would have failed by now if it was gonna fail and the next couple of years, there's not as much of an injury re-risk. You know, it's basically what would be the R years. So there's no, you know, as far as like risk management stuff goes, there's no risk for him. He'll take the ball. He'll look good. And you know what? It's a cynical, cynical way to look at it, but I don't care. If that's what it takes to get Matt Harvey on the mound, that's fine. That's good business. Yeah, I don't look down on it at all. I mean... If- when I heard that, I was like, "Oh yeah, like why didn't why didn't he do this earlier?" Like that makes why don't more sense. pitchers do that in general? Yeah, so I mean, you don't know how much is going to be for a payout or whatever, but I I, I think it's great, and I, you can tell that the timing of him you know, taking the ball at the end of the season, pitching seven innings, it, it coincides with the insurance, and so it, it makes sense, and I got no problem with it. I don't either. Um, look, I mean, if this team. Wins the World Series, it's going to be on the back of these four arms. Well, five arms you want to throw in Familia, six arms if you want to throw in Fireman Bart. <laughs> yeah, that's where it's going to, that's what it's going to come down to. And they're going to have to figure out the Royals lineup, and they're going to have to leave the game with a lead, as we'll get into when we talk about the Royals, and specifically the Royals' bullpen. Uh, and if it's, if it's Noah Syndergaard in Game 7, having, he's looked really good. I mean, you'd like to get a little more length out of him than you have the last few starts, but he's looked really good. Like, I'm, I'm going to be there for Game 3. I get to watch Noah Syndergaard pitch at a playoff game. It's going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, Noah Syndergaard's really good. All these pitchers are really good. Yeah, I guess it's part of the reason I'm excited about this. <laughs> so the other story sort of around the Mets pitching staff is that the or Kansas City Royals were the best team in baseball this year against 95-plus fastballs. Counter to the Cubs— who were not very good against what we would loosely define as plus fastballs or better. Is this concerning to you? No. Uh, it's, it's 95, 95 miles an hour is just like, it's an arbitrary number. It's, it's, they're a good hitting team. They make yes. a lot of contact. Yes. And therefore, they're going to be better against higher velocities because they're, uh, they're good baseball team good good hitters good they're contact gonna, they're gonna be better against all kinds of pitches yeah it's it's not surprising that the team that strikes out the least 
He's also good at making contact against faster velocity. I mean, would you really feel better starting John Neese and Bartolo Colon in this series? No. You're not going to change anything. You're not, it's, I'm not going to feel better if I had Dylan G out there throwing 89 miles an hour. You know, it's, just, it's not going to make me feel better. Um, so that, that's a non-story for, for me. I mean, the, the story is that, that they're a pretty good hitting team, and, and that's they make a lot of contact. I mean, they make significant – they struck out significantly less than, say, a team like the Cubs, who were, were the highest strikeout team in, the, in all of baseball. So – that's the story for me. And yes, the the Mets pitchers throw hard. We know this. You know, Harvey and DeGrom both have three above average secondary pitches. Syndergaard has his curve and he's had better feel for the change, I think, in the playoffs than he had in the regular season. You know, Matt showed better feel for his secondaries against the Cubs in his start. And again, yes, you know, these are the guys you're going to win or lose with, or I, I suppose Murph continuing to Murph and redefining what Murph means to Murph. <laughs> So since this is a more formal co- podcast, Greg Karam, we have to talk about Daniel Murphy. I'm going to throw some numbers at you. Okay, please. National League Divisional Series, 333, 333, 8-10. After the Divisional Series, uh, Steve and I discussed this on the podcast, wasn't as good as Carlos Beltran's best playoff series. We can't say that anymore, Greg, because the National League Championship Series, Daniel Murphy hit 529-556-1294. As confirmed at Media Day yesterday, he is from planet Earth, Jacksonville, Florida, to be specific. Now, you can't bet on this continuing, obviously, but we said the same thing after the Divisional Series, too. I don't know that I have a question here. Well, look, uh, part of a hot streak is how how the pitchers respond to you as a result of that. Are they going to treat him the way they would have in the regular season, or are they going to pitch him like the guy who has been crushing the ball since August? You know, I mean, this this has this hot streak has reached stratospheric levels in the playoffs, but he's been slugging the ball, you know. With over a 200 ISO since August one, since they got Cespedes and slapped, you know, put him in the lineup behind him. So, I I think he's going to be in for another good series. I'm not going to predict that he's going to hit, um, you know, five more home runs, but uh, no, 1800 OPS on the uh, horizon. Yeah, yeah, he's not going to continue his 605 ISO uh, in the playoffs. But look, the, the Royals are a right-handed, predominantly uh, right-handed. Everybody's pretty. Every, much everyone on that staff is right-handed, basically. Yeah. So it's it's a good matchup for Murph. Although I mean, you know, I wouldn't have said Kershaw was a good matchup for Murph, <laughs> but it ended up being that way. <laughs> uh... Guys locked in right now. Um, you, know, you know, who knows if the time off is gonna. You know, yeah, that's all narrative stuff and whatever, but I'm sure that his his confidence is very high right now, and I think that it could carry over into the World Series, hopefully. So if not Murphy, then who? Who are you looking for in this lineup to get hot and maybe carry the team for a couple of days? I think Conforto's capable of doing it, and he's a guy who hasn't really... I mean, he had a few at-bats. He's hit, he hit the one home run off Granky in Game 2 of the DS, so he's a guy who I could see heating up and taking advantage of this right-handed... 
uh, you know, staff that the, the, the Royals are going to be throwing out there. And he's going to be a guy who needs to because he's going to be playing every single game. I do think and, getting regular reps will help him now instead of playing once every couple of days like he has for most of the playoffs so far. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I think that it lines up well for the Mets for the most part. I mean, it's – they have a lot of good – And there's you know, there's no pitchers in that in that uh, rotation that scare you at all. No, no, it's 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 like really, I know I know Volquez has been good this year, but he's been basically a slightly above average starter. He doesn't really miss bats anymore. Yeah, and Cueto's not who he used to be. Yeah, who knows? We'll, we get into Cueto a little bit more extensively with uh, Andy McCullough later in the show, but who knows what's going on there? You know, Yordano Ventura, he's a good pitcher. Now you know he's probably closer to to Syndergaard than he is some of the aces that the Mets have seen. You know, he's a guy that plus velocity can air it out doesn't always have you know the feel or the command may not give you length which is less of an issue with the royals bullpen obviously but he's a guy i think they can hit and then chris young (laughs) or danny duffy i mean it's like yeah it's it's yeah i think they went with chris young in in the championship series yeah um yeah, it, the the starting pitching is the thing that scares you the least about the Royals, I would say. Yeah. And I think that's where they have the biggest um, advantage for the Mets in the series is in the starting pitching. I think you sort of hit Conforto's a good choice. I think Lucas Duda. Yeah. He's seeing a lot of right-handed starters. He looked oh, pretty that's going to be good. He that's looks pretty good, good against uh, Jason Hamill. You know, maybe it's starting to come around. Maybe it was just a blip. I don't know. But if he gets hot, he is a guy that can carry you for a series. Uh, like, yeah, uh, if, like if there was going to be one guy who we could have predict, who could have, like you said on, on maybe the last podcast, is like if you were going to choose a guy who somebody told you they hit a home run in five straight games, yeah. Lucas Dude is probably my first choice. Yeah. And then there's a uh, sort of my sleeper pick, which is Juan Uribe. <laughs> so it sounds like Juan Uribe is going to make the roster. Do in you place, in place in place, probably Kirk Newenheis. Okay. Do you risk it, Greg Karam? Yeah, I mean, it's Juan Uribe, man. I'm not going to say no to Juan Uribe. Are you kidding me? I love that guy. So here's my argument. It's the World Series. You you take him out to Kansas City, like it sounds they're going to. You put him on the roster. If after game two, he just can't go, you replace him. So what? You can't use him for the rest of the playoffs. It doesn't matter at that point anyway. Kirk's basically been a dead roster spot along with Ploiecki and Reynolds. Uh, you know, bizarre game four double switches notwithstanding because Terry Collins is going to Terry Collins at some point. Yeah. And if you get it, yeah. you know, if he's ready by game three at least, you know, take that shot. I just, you know, it's silly, like, hashtag narrative. I know the actual, like, clutch stats. If you go on his baseball reference page, don't back it up. I just feel like Juan Uribe has one big dong in him in this series in a big spot. I know there's sort of like the Cliff Floyd 2006 parallels here, where they kept a, a Cliff Floyd that wasn't really Cliff Floyd on the roster. You know, he pinch hit in the ninth inning against the Cardinals with guys on first and second and struck out. I just, I want to roll the dice with Juan Uribe, man. Yeah. yeah I mean, even if he can't play the field, you could always DH him in the uh, AL games, too. I don't think they'll do that because of the right-handed pitching. I think you're going to see Kelly Johnson... Or maybe Conforto with Ligaris in center for defense, depending on when and if they want to stack lefties. But uh, yeah. something only, about Juan Uribe. 
The only issue I have there is that, you know, Kirk, as much as he's been a dead roster spot, they don't have a lot of lefty bats off the bench who are going to be, that they're going to be able to use in a big spot as a pinch hitter. I mean, I'm not saying Kirk is necessarily the best guy, but he's a guy you could throw in there against a righty and who might be able to give you, you know, a big dog. So I'm not, I'm not, maybe, maybe I'd be a little bit more aggressive. Maybe I'd try to, uh, I mean, if you leave, say, a guy like Reynolds, who's like completely just there for insurance, right? What's the worst that happens? Kelly Johnson plays shortstop. Sure. And that, but that's only for one game, right? The rest of that game. Yeah, right? then you just add Reynolds to the roster. Then you add him to the for, roster. For whoever, so, and then, then when we're Flores buys his uh, World Series winning teammates a bunch of bottles of Johnny Walker Blue and then yeah. on them. Um, yeah, no, I know. it's. I might get aggressive that way. Really? You think that's not the worst idea in the world i mean i was gonna my next question was gonna be over under 0.5 plate appearances for matt reynolds in the 2015 world series i mean it's i'm taking the under i I feel bad i would have tried to get him like an at bat instead of kadair in the in game four because why not get the dude in at bat Uh, do you really feel bad i do (laughs) i don't feel bad He's, he's getting up he's making more on a playoff share this year than he made that's actually true. I didn't even think about that. He gets that. a full playoff share because he's on the playoff roster. And he wasn't on the 40 before that. He wasn't on the 40, so he was making, you know, triple-A guy. Yeah. 1500 a month, maybe. Oh, man. He just he just fell he, into it. He did. <laughs> I, I mean, he's no, like, I know there's a million other things to cover, but there's enough, like, embedded beat guys at this point from all the New York papers. How has someone just not followed Matt Reynolds around for a day? I know. Like, I does know. he have an apartment? Is he living in a hotel? I assume they just got him a hotel. Um, is he crashing with Ploiecki maybe because they're buds and they play together a bunch like what's his life like I know that would be and and, and yeah give me that story give me the story of when he found out he was co- coming to St. Yeah. Lucie and then he got the call like that, I mean this is partially my fault because I was there for games three and four I just didn't bother to walk down to, I didn't have locker room access I think that's where he was most of the time but I should have grabbed him on the field and just gotten 15 minutes with him because who else is talking to Matt Reynolds in that spot right right given everything else that's going on oh well next time yeah we'll turn our attention to the royals actually before we do that it is funny that like in this podcast in march we were like beating the drum for matt reynolds to make the roster over eric campbell for like months and months and now he's like on the playoff roster despite not playing a game for the team this year (sighs) baseball is weird and wonderful it's played out funny but now we will turn our attention to the royals and who's the one player on the royals you're most afraid of Huh. I'd say probably Lorenzo Kane. I mean, he's the best player on their team, but he's a guy who can hurt you on both sides of the field. Um, he's really become a good offensive player, which is... He's also not, probably making like a ridiculous play in the gap on a Michael Conforto liner at some point in the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of play that just makes you like, like that's unfair, and just gets you all worked up. But he's also... I mean, really good with the bat, which is just not my what my perception was of him. Uh, I had him more of as a you know, Juan Lagares with a little bit more bat, but it's actually a lot more bat. And, it's like uh, top five in the MVP voting this year, probably. Yeah. So I mean, he's he's a guy who scares me. I'm. A, that's probably. I mean, I don't know. That's probably my guy. It, there's no one guy on this roster who really just jumps out at me and is like, there's no. Um, there's no Schwarber on there. There's no Chris Bryant. 
you know, it's just more about the overall quality of their lineup that really kind of scares me. I think for me, it's Wade Davis. Oh, I mean, as a, <laughs> if you're going pitchers, yeah. I mean, so like I said, I think the Mets can hit the starting rotation. I think push comes to, to shove, they can get to Ryan Madsen and Luke Hochaver if they're in the middle innings. You know, Herrera's tough, obviously. Um, but Davis can go two innings. Or, <laughs> Davis should go two innings most times and really shorten games. And the Mets have played a lot of close games in this playoffs. So I think reliever performance is going to be the key. So here's some, yeah. here's some way, here's some fun Wade Davis facts, Greg. Yeah. Yeah, please. He gave up zero home runs in 2014. Yeah, I saw that today. That's crazy. Last two seasons, 4.8 and 4.4 hits per nine innings. 19 extra base hits in 140 innings over the last two seasons. Over 30% K rate the last two years. That's about as close to unhittable as you will find in baseball. It's amazing how poorly he did as a starter and just how relievers, man, he is as a reliever. Look I mean, at, you know, look at Familia. Yeah, yeah. He was a pretty good starting pitching prospect. Like, I mean, their their career tracks are actually fairly similar. They're both kind of like back end top one hundred types of starters in the upper minors. Big arms, but you know, mechanics issues, command issues, control issues. And you put him in the bullpen. And don't forget, the uh, Royals tried to make him a starter that first season after trading uh, right, for right. him from Tampa Bay, and it worked out terribly. They moved him to the pen, and his, I think his combined ERA the last two years is under one. It's crazy, and he's been throwing harder and harder every year. I mean... And it's like, it's the it's the Mariano Rivera theory, when you look at those numbers. you got to get three singles. Yeah. And that's a really tough ask in in a... You know, in a one-run game in the eighth and ninth, you got to string together singles. You're just not getting extra base hits about him, off him, and he's been worse this year. He, yeah, I looked up, year. he gave up five extra base hits last year in seventy innings. Five, five extra base hits. He's been slightly more hittable, and the K rate's a little lower, and it's still over thirty percent. Jeez, I just think, like I said, I think they can hit the starting pitching. I think they can pitch to the lineup. There's no any. It's whatever. They got to make plays in the field. They're not going to rack up double digit strikeouts against this team. But there's nobody that super scares you. I just think right. it's be tough for them to score runs in the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Conversely, I think the Royals lineup is perfectly suited to making our lives completely miserable against Reed, Clippard, and Cologne. <sighs> yeah, I mean those aren't really your um, the strikeout pitchers there so I just see Alex Gordon hitting a high change up like 450 feet at some point in the series from Clifford yeah I mean I can picture a lot of guys doing that against Clifford <laughs> at this point yeah um, pretty much yeah Salvi Perez whoever yeah yeah I mean look hopefully hopefully it doesn't go to that you know hopefully it doesn't get to that point where hopefully the the starting pitching goes deep and and we can hand it right off to Familia or just have everything go as easy as the Cub series. Let's just hope for that. I do want, like, I'm just not, I'm ready for another drama-free, like, Mets in five. It'd be great. Oh my, it'd be great. It'd be lovely. Probably uh, not going to happen. Yeah, I don't know if I can, I mean. Well, I look at it, th- I look at it this way. 
I am exactly as terrified about this series as I've been every other playoff series. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, no, I, I'm no more or less terrified. I'm just generally terrified. <clears throat> yeah, I think my confidence in the Mets team is a little bit higher than it ha- ever has been. I think that's pretty natural coming off a sweep in, in LS, LCS, but the Royals, they scare me. Hey, everybody scares me. It's just a scary time. Yeah. Okay, analysis over. The analysis part of this podcast is now over. Mm-hmm. How the hell do we handle this as Mets fans? I don't know, because like, it was... It, in the the division series, I think my the, like the most nervous I was in the division series was game one. You're going up against Kershaw, and then from the Murph homer, I wasn't nervous really again until game five. In game five, I was a wreck. I was a freaking wreck. Um, but then then you go to the LCS, and I wasn't I wasn't really that nervous at all throughout the whole thing because they were just winning the whole time. And so I feel like this series is just going to be like game five of the division series, like over and over and over and over again. And like, I don't know how I can handle that. I mean, I'm just going to have to have like quantities of alcohol just at the ready. And just, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to deal with it. Cause like, I'm just going to be a nervous wreck. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think my moments of panic in the Cubs series basically came down to like that one, like, from was it Chris Bryant's at bat to Starlin Castro getting thrown out at the plate in game mm. one. Yep, 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 yep. And then basically the fifth inning of game four when Matt loaded the bases and they got the liner yep. to right. Yep, and yep, yep. You were, that was nerve. That was nerve wracking. But that's really about it. Yeah. I get. I guess. Uh, Cologne coming in to face Chris Bryant, too. That was my own fault for not trusting in Fireman Bart. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, for me, it's weird because I don't know how much longer I have, like, in this state of being. And I don't mean, like, I'm not, like, dying or anything. I mean, we're all dying, really, blah, 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 whatever. Um, <laughs> but, like, as a Mets fan, you know, I have... I'm be spending a lot of time next year on the road doing national prospect coverage for baseball prospectus. That is a fact of life for me. Um, I feel almost odd writing the game stories I'm writing for them because they're very much from a Mets fan perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the stuff I've written a lot for them. Uh, my game and quote unquote gamers, but mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, that part of myself may not be as easy to access in the future. And I guess this is what I want. You know, I like writing about baseball. I love baseball. I love the sport. I love every little story here and there. Um, you know, Mets fandom was my my window into that first and foremost, and it will never leave me. I mean, I'm not one of those guys that's become a national writer. I know we were there for uh, for the last pitch talk. You know, Mike Craig. I think somebody asked him how to get into beat writing or journalism. He said, "Well, you have to." You have to get rid of your fandom. And I, I have the luxury of not having to do that in my line of work currently, such as it is. I can carry that with me. But the real, like, you know, nuts and bolts, you know, feet on the floor, like in the morass of Mets fandom, for good and for ill, and a lot of times it's just horrible, horrible shit. Uh, well, 
I don't know if I get another shot at this, really. Certainly nothing like this. No. Because let's, be, let, let's be honest. Next year, in all likelihood, you know, I don't know what the offseason brings. There'll be plenty of times for that to discuss in the offseason podcast. I'm not doing it now. I'm not talking about Murph qualifying offers or extensions. I'm not talking about the suspended situation. It's just not interesting at this point in time. It no. isn't. Um, but I think, you know, they might be the favorites in the division next year. We might roll into March, and this team is predicted to win the division. Yeah, the expectations are going to be vastly different next year, regardless of the outcome here. Yeah, this is, you know, like I, I've said before on the show, this is a, a diamond in the rough. You might not get another season like this, any of us, um, in the coming years. Look, I'm on board with you like in saying that now's the time because, you know, there's a... You know, I'm I'm at a point in my life where like I don't have extra responsibilities, I don't have kids running around or anything like that. You know, I I can devote my I don't full... know if I, I don't know if I want to bring kids into Mets fandom for the first time. I just <laughs> can say, you do that just... to a child? <laughs> yeah, right, right. You know, so I, I mean, right now I can just devote you know free time to paying attention to the Mets. You know, that's why I'm here. I'm doing a podcast. I got all this time. Like I'm just enjoying it, being a fan, and I mean do it now you know do it do it now you're there um i don't i just who knows what the future is going to bring and i think here's the thing you have david wright in that locker room you think wright doesn't know that everyone thought this team was going to be a perennial winner after 2006 yeah you think he's banking on 2016 that's what i'm saying like going into game five of the the ds there were people going you know oh no matter what happens this is a great season like you know i mean i was one of those people i I think it was but 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 fuck that man no i know now now is the time gotta do it while you're there i went i went i went to models on my lunch break after they won the uh after they won the uh nlcs i got a pennant i got a pint glass that i'm drinking out of right now a gigantic whiskey sour I got, See, the, I, I got the Pennant Will Rise shirt, which I'm like morally opposed to. Can it just say like National League Champions? Not the Pennant Will Rise. We do something in the active present tense voice. <laughs> like what marketing person got paid for that? But I bought the damn shirt. Yeah. I'm holding off. I'm holding off. I know you are, yeah. I'm waiting until it's all said and done, and then I'm going to get the thing that they did the, the most. <laughs> <laughs> I had a conversation with a, with a friend of mine from bowling, and he uh, he's a Yankees fan. And he asked me, he's like, yeah, I see like the postseason shirts are on closeout now for like eight bucks. Should I get one? I'm like, I don't know, man. If like, if it was me, if they're not hanging a pennant for it, I don't do it. <laughs> you hang a banner for it. Like, look, you win your division. I know there are only five team divisions now. I think you win your division. That's an accomplishment. 162 yeah. game season. You play the teams in your division the most. If you want to get a NL East Champions t-shirt, by all means, I own one. Um. If you win the National League, if you win the NLCS, that's an you go to the World Series. That's an accomplishment. You can buy things from it. If you lose in the wild card game and you wear the T-shirt, I might have some things to say. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I, I told him like you know if you're going to like an event, if you're out on the town and you like spill coffee all over your shirt and you need to buy another shirt, <laughs> and it's only eight dollars, you see it at a bodega, get the shirt. That's fine. You needed a shirt. You didn't specifically buy the shirt because your team was the wild card winner and then Look, lost I'm, in the wild card game. 
I'm against it, and therefore I encourage all Yankee fans to go out and buy one. <laughs> all right, we've come to that point in the show, Greg. Mm-hmm. Your official prediction for the World Series. Oh shit! I don't even know if I like actually had thought about like making a prediction, but um, I think that the Mets' pitching edge in, in the starting pitching, at least, and I think the lineups are a bit of a wash. Uh, the Royals are a bit more of a they're a bit better defensively. Uh, I think the base pads are, are are a wash, but I think and they have a they have an edge in the bullpen, but I think the starting pitching carries the Mets, and I think that they win in six. So I couldn't say anything for the divisional series because I was doing the preview, and I, I basically, I said the Dodgers had a slight edge because they had to play Kershaw and Greinke twice. And that series ended up being very close. I didn't have to do anything for the uh, preview-wise for the Cubs series, but I probably would have picked the Cubs if it came down to it. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, they haven't told me I'm doing the World Series preview. And it's Sunday, so I God, I hope I don't get an email tonight. <laughs> given what my schedule looks like the next couple of days. So I'm going to assume I'm in the clear here. Um, like I said, I'm terrified. The Royals are slight betting favorites. I think that's fair. I'm ready. Like I'm ready for this team to win the damn World Series. Mets in six. DeGrom shuts them out. That's yeah. what I got. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now we'll take a break. We come back. We'll have Andy McCall on, probably to tell me why I'm an idiot. And then David <laughs> Roth from Vice Sports as we further try to figure this out. Mets are in the World Series, and that's a cause for both celebration and reflection. So I thought it might be appropriate to go back and get back on the show the first podcast podcast guest we ever had. Conveniently, he also happens to cover the Royals for the Kansas City Star. You might know him as the former Mets beat writer and a man always clad in tartan. Andy McCullough, welcome back to the show. What, what is tartan? It's like a different kind of plaid. I don't exactly know what it is either, other than it's Scottish. Huh. Does it like have to like? Does it have to have red in it? I think so. It's like a different size check. I guess is how it uh, uh, how it works. I'm not a fashionista. Yeah, I mean, that would that would explain, I guess, what I wear most of the time. Yeah, that makes sense. So I have to say, two years ago, we had you on the show to talk about uh, Mets prospects that might help the 2013 team. I think Matt Dendecker came up at some point. <laughs> and now, two years later, this is how we cross paths. Well, didn't did Den Decker get them Jerry Blevins? Like, did, did Jerry Blevins like do anything this year, or did he just have like a broken arm the whole time? I don't was, remember. I think he is the all-time uh, ERA letter ERA leader for the team, like minimum five innings now. Good for him, man. So, there, so I was right. Yeah, 
He's also a very entertaining uh, Twitter follow, so he has that going for him, too. Uh, well, so there you go. So we will get to the nuts and bolts of the Mets Royals World Series in a moment. But first, for our mostly East Coast listeners, some in Scandinavia and Europe as well, um, can you explain Eski Magic? Sure. Um, so the Kansas City Royals um, uh, have a player named Alcides Escobar. He plays shortstop. Um, he is or was throughout the regular season a pretty terrible hitter. Um, you know, really swing heavy, doesn't have a lot of power, doesn't draw any walks. Um, you know, so basically all batting average. And, uh, you know, but last year he became their leadoff hitter late in the season. Uh, he had a pretty good season last year, actually. I think he, I think he had like a 700 OPS. Um, you know, he's a great fielder, so he's, he's an all-around pretty good player. Um, but he was their leadoff hitter for the beginning of the season. At the end of the season last year, we went to the World Series. So when they rebuilt the lineup for 2015, Ned Yost installed him at the top. And, you know, they, the team kept winning uh, despite the fact that Escobar was terrible all year, like, you know, 600 OPS type terrible and was horrible in the second half, you know, like 450, 500 OPS. Um, so, you know, when the team got Ben Zobrist and when Alex Gordon came off the DL, you know, they were kind of just waiting to put Ben Zobrist or Alex Gordon in at the leadoff spot and move Escobar back to the nine hole where he belongs. But when they did that in September, a strange thing happened that the team constantly lost. And they usually lost because of the pitching staff. The pitching staff did not uh, go, you know, was not good in September. So they, they had a, like a 10 and 17 or something like that record in September. So Ned Yost was sick of this and decided that in order to spark the team or to just sort of, you know, get the lineup back in order. You know, the, the offense was okay, but it was a little shaky, and Alex Gordon was very cold coming off the DL. So in order to uh, shake up the order, he decided to move Alex Gordon, who for, much, for the first half of the year was the team's best hitter, um, into the number eight spot, and he put Escobar into the leadoff spot. And so he did that in uh, the fifth-to-last game of the year. Uh, they were playing the White Sox. Eric Hosmer hit a home run. Uh, Escobar was not involved at all in the victory, and uh, the homer by uh, Hosner started a five-game winning streak to end the year, and now Alcides Escobar uh, is their leadoff hitter for the rest of the playoffs. And then the funny thing happened uh, in October is that Escobar uh, has been tremendous. Um, he's like, he's uh, just been, he was really, really good. He was the ALCS MVP, tons of hits, getting on base a lot, hitting with some power, hitting some doubles. And so, yeah, uh, Esky Magic is uh, essentially... The Royals um, understand the concept of science, but they believe in faith more. Got it. So the 2014 Royals got to the World Series on the strength of team defense, some timely hitting, a lot of singles, and a shutdown bullpen. Is the 2015 team markedly different from that now? Um, no. Well, what I would say is uh, they're... Defense is just as good, maybe slightly worse, because Alex Gordon's made probably um, a shade worse uh, left. Um, the bullpen is slightly reduced because they do not have Greg Holland, and uh, his replacement, Ryan Madsen, uh, has been shaky here in October, but they still have uh, Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrera, who might be the two best relievers in the playoffs. No offense to Familia, who's apparently great now, um, but, you know, Davis is um, probably the best reliever in the American League, and... Um, you know, showed in Game 6 of the ALCS what he's capable of doing. Um, and then the biggest difference is that the offense is actually good this year. Um, last year they were not a good offensive team. They had, I believe, 
two hitters with OPS pluses above 100 in Alex Gordon and Lorenzo Cain, and it was like Cain was like 108 and Gordon was like 119. And this year they've got four or five guys around the 120 mark, um, you know, 130 mark, uh, with, uh, you know, Hosmer's having a great year. Lorenzo Cain is probably going to be the third or fourth on the MVP ballot. Um, Kendrick Morales had, you know, 20 homers and 100 RBIs. Mike Moustakis had the best year of his life. Uh, Gordon has still been good. They got Ben Zobrist um, at, the, at the deadline. He's been fantastic. You know, Alex Rios has perked up in uh, in October. So, basically, it takes it takes the best parts of what they were last year, uh, make them slightly worse. But I, I think the offense is really a, a major upgrade of where it was last year. So you would say overall this is a better team than the 2014 edition? Oh, much edition? better. Much better team, yeah. I mean, they're, they're um, you know they won six games more in the regular season and probably could have won a hundred games if they had you know not regressed so much in uh, September. So yeah, much better team. So who's the one guy? I mean, there's obviously a multi-pronged attack now, but who's the one guy that Mets fans should be most scared of on this Royals team? Hmm. Um, good question. You know. <sighs> The hard part is, it really, it doesn't matter. Like, because they've got eight other guys who are good. I mean, that's the thing about this team is that if you find nine above average players, you can be really, really dangerous. Especially when the style they play um, tends to, you know, be rewarded uh, in the playoffs. You know, they they um, they put the ball in play. They, um, you know, force sort of the defense to make plays. You know, they, they're aggressive on the bases. And so, like, who's their best hitter? Um, it's, right now, it's probably Ben Zobrist. Uh, you know, he, he probably had the best ALCS in terms of, you know, combining on base and power, although Escobar, um, you know, had a higher batting average. Um, but, you know, Lorenzo Cain, again, is, is like a, is a, uh, you know, an 850 OPS type player. Uh, Eric Hosmer has, a ton of talent. He's an 825, you know, OPS type guy. Um, Mike Moustakis, you know, hit 25 homers or 20 homers. You know, Alex Gordon has been, you know, an MVP before. So, you know, Salvador Perez hit 22 homers. Kendrick Morales, you know, is fantastic. So it, the thing is, like, probably their best player is Kane. Their hottest hitter right now is Zobrist. And they have six other guys in the lineup who are really good. <laughs> Seven other guys in the lineup who are good. So, you know, it doesn't, there's not one guy to worry about because everyone can hurt you. Going back to the pitching side of things for a second, when the Royals seem to have struggled a little bit also down the stretch and in the playoffs, it's teams that have been able to get to their starting pitching early. Right now, it looks like Johnny Cueto will start game one, potentially also four and seven. What is Who going is saying that Johnny Cueto, Who's saying that Johnny Cueto is starting game one? I don't know. I saw it. Isn't he on Has time? anyone said that? Well, Has you, anyone said it? I don't know. You're the you're the uh, you're the not, I do not think. You do I, not think I mean, I could be one. I could be wrong about this. I would be surprised if someone besides Edison Volquez is starting game one. I, I could you be think wrong. So. Volquez. Probably as the Royal. So uh, I think that would be a very bold move for the Royals to start him in game one, considering how he got um, just crushed in game three. In, uh, at Rogers Center. Um, he also you know, pitched I, great so, in a uh, do-or-die game against Houston, though. Sure, sure he did. But in his last performance, he did not show up. So, you know, again, this is a team that uh, very much pays attention to what's going on, you know, in the here and now, you know. And, you know, if you, if you like, there's no argument to make that Johnny Cueto is the best pitcher on the Royals. He would not pitch on, he's not going to pitch one, four, and seven because he won't pitch on short rest. So that's out. They're going to use four starters. Um, most, I mean, 
it's hard to say what's most likely right now, but I, I would be somewhat surprised if Johnny Cueto is pitching game one. I would think most likely he pitched games two and six so they can keep him out of city field. They don't feel comfortable with him pitching on the road. Um, you know, so you so probably that's, so that's a thing now. What's the thing? The Cueto on the road in loud stadiums is that like a thing now? Yeah, have you watched him pitch in the road in loud stadiums? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I've seen the games. It's two games. Well, okay, but like again, if this is it's not two games. They, 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 he played in Baltimore during the regular season. He was bad. Uh, there was other ones during the year that are that I'm blanking on. But you're talking about a guy who had a, a five ERA as a Royal and has had one good start and two bad ones uh, here in the playoffs. And in his last one, he was non-competitive. So I would he, he's not going to pitch one four and seven guaranteed. And I would think most likely he pitched two and six with right. Volquez going in game one. So the question is then, what is up with Johnny Cueto? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the Royals don't really have an answer, and I think at this point he, they view him as someone else's problem in about two weeks. Um, I mean, there's lots of stuff. He's he's been an utterly confusing asset for them, uh, for for the coaching staff, for management. He's not a bad guy. He seems like a very happy-go-lucky, you know, friendly guy. Works hard. You know, puts in the effort absolutely, um, but. Uh, they just are having, they're unable to sort of figure out what what the deal is. I mean, you know, uh, he's, Cueto says he's healthy, the Royals publicly say he's healthy. There's plenty of people around the game who feel like that, you know, um, he's not able to get full extension on his pitches because he's holding something back with his elbow. You know, that's that's just what people, you know, that's what scouts and executives are, you know, saying to people like me because, we, you know, they like gossiping about these things, but... Um, you know, there's issues with communication, you know, uh, Cueto complained, not didn't complain, but had some issues with Perez's positioning behind the plate. Um, you know, so that was a, uh, you know, that was something that, uh, affected him. You know, he had this five-stretch stretch where he had a nine-five-seven ERA and he was like, you know, over throwing, he was over manipulating the baseball, you know, trying to get too much velocity, trying to get extra spin. Um, you know, some people on Royals think he, really struggles to pitch out of the stretch. Some people on the Royals think he, you know, just doesn't have it in big games and loud stadiums on the road, et cetera, et cetera. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know what the answer is. And and the way, I mean, I really feel the way they look at it is he's going to be someone else's problem in a couple of weeks. So we'll talk about their game one starter, then Edison Volquez. A bit of a revelation <laughs> this year for the it could Royals. Be Edison Volquez. I don't know. They haven't announced yet. I mean, it probably won't, I mean, be, it won't be Ventura on short rest, I assume. Right. Uh, it won't be Chris Young. So, you know, you choose Bulkheads, who's been their best guy in the postseason. I don't know. That's just my thing. Again, it's Ned Yost. Who the hell knows what he'll do? So what's been the biggest difference for Volquez this year versus some of his recent struggles? Well, the last two seasons, really, you know, and he, this started last year in Pittsburgh with, with the Pirates and Ray Searage. You know, they just – he uh, he made just some technical small things that are really boring, but, you know, just basically, like – got back to throwing strikes, his delivery just didn't work for so many years, you know, and he had such good stuff, but it just seemed like he was nibbling, and it seemed like he was sort of passive almost, and, and the way Volquez put it is like, he's like, no, like, you know, I, I wanted to throw strikes, I just like physically couldn't repeat my delivery just because of, you know, he would rush himself, he, he wouldn't keep his composure on the mound in terms of staying back on the rubber and all those sorts of things, so, um, you know, there, there was some tweaks that were made, you know, by Steerage and the Pittsburgh folks and have been carried over by Dave Island and the, and the people um, with the Royals. And he's, he's been really, really consistent for him. He faded just a little bit down the stretch in the second half, but you know, he's been giving them pretty, pretty quality five, six inning chunks 
um, here in, in the ALBS and the ALCS. You know, he pitched really well. Um, you know, has has not been afraid to challenge hitters. His fastball sitting like 96, 97 uh, here in the ALCS, which is nuts because he sat about 93, 94 during the regular season. So he's airing it out. Um, you know, and, he, and he's fearless. Uh, he, you know, he's accountable. He's kind of he's everything you'd want really in a in a veteran pitcher. He's a you know he's a good sort of guy to have around Yordano Ventura. Um, you know, it's a standard fastball curveball changeup mix. You know, uh, with the the he throws this power sinker that um, you know this, he can get so much arm side run on it that he'll put it in the opposing batter's box. They can come and get the outside edge. Um, but you know, yeah, so he, he's a good pitcher. He's a, he's a good number three starter. So if you were to build a blueprint, I mean, you got your number three starter st- starting game one. You've got whatever's up with Johnny Cueto. You've got your Dono Ventura, who's got a live arm, but who knows what you're going to get start to start and how deep he can go into games. The blueprint to beat the Royals is basically get to their starters as early and as often as you can. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, but that's every team. Sure. But if you're, I mean, right. as opposed, yeah. not every team has, you know, Wade Davis for six outs most of the time. Sure. Well, when you get to the playoffs, you know, every team... Every team basically has the same vulnerabilities. It's in the fourth, fifth, and sixth innings before before managers are willing to use their elite relievers and when starting pitchers start to show weakness. And so that's when you know you do damage. And um, you know you can't ambush the guy in the first inning. You know you you try and take advantage of that third time through the order penalty when managers are less willing to to use their top guys. So the Royals have the same vulnerabilities there, I think, as every big league team, especially in the playoffs. You know. So you covered both the Mets and the Royals over the past few years. So I'm going to ask you this. Do you have any explanation for what's going on with Daniel Murphy? <laughs> um, contact hitter, you know. Uh, contact plays in the postseason, you know. Uh, that's the best I can do. Other than that, you know, no, it's inexplicable. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, good, good for Murphy. He's always, a, you know, I always like dealing with him. And uh, it seems like he's enjoying it, and he's going to make a you know a, a crap load of money this winter. So good for him. Now you're coming back to the city for games three, four, and five next weekend. What are you most looking forward to doing while you're in the city, other than covering baseball games? Assuming you have time to do other things other than covering baseball games. Yeah, get some pizza. Uh, I'm going to uh, eat a breakfast sandwich. Um. I don't know. I haven't really thought it through. Um, you know, maybe I'll go to some awesome bars like Joshua Tree or something. There's no emo. Uh, sh- there's no emo shows lined up like in Toronto. No. Oh man, that dude. I that was amazing. Yeah. I haven't. I you know what? I haven't even looked at it. I don't. I haven't even looked at uh, what the shows are. What the schedule is. Thank you for the reminder. But yeah, I saw the Wonder Years after Game Five in uh, Toronto. That was that was awesome. So I'll have to check that out because there's always that's you know there's lots of. Um, things about new york city that are nicer than kansas city although kansas city is a great town and i really enjoy it here um but the uh, concert slate is uh much weaker here than it is in new york so i'll have to check that out i don't know so speaking of kansas city we'll let you go on this you're going to be entertaining beat writers from across the country in the coming week is kansas city barbecue specifically oklahoma joe's i know it's just joe's now really that good or is it just beat writers will eat anything barbecued well I mean, you're, the second part is um, probably closest to the truth. Here's the thing. I'm not a big barbecue guy. Uh, I, I just, you know, I think Kansas City barbecue is good. Um, it's, it's a good meal. But, you know, for me, you got to deal with a lot of, like, uh, sort of body image shame, like, afterwards. You know, you just, like, feel fat and gross and bloated. 
um, you know, it's like, it's, uh, you know, it's greasy. You know, you kind of, you're like, am I really going to eat like this entire bowl of cheesy corn? It's like, yes, yes, you are. Um, I don't like ribs, you know, cause I don't like eating with my hand. I don't like getting my hands messy, like while I eat. So, um, I'm not a huge barbecue guy, but I will say it's good. You know, Joe's, Joe's is good. Uh, Jack's Snack is good. I'm trying to think. There's a place called, uh, Char Bar that's new that's good. Uh, a place called Q39 that's good. So yeah, I mean, it's good. It's, it's all good. But like, there's, there's tons of, um, better food options in Kansas City if you don't just want to be the most stereotypical glutton on earth. I don't think that's... And maybe I, you do. I mean, that's, I mean that's, We're talking uh, about the Baseball Writers Association of America here, Andy. Hey, man. Well, I mean, I, I refuse to have my group slandered based on what dorks on the internet say. No, not present company, notwithstanding. Um, <laughs> because the BBWA rocks, man. We're going to put Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame someday. Yeah, keep uh, keep chopping that wood. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep fucking that chicken. All right, Andy. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll see you probably another 150 episodes or so. Sounds great, man. I'm glad you're still doing this. Joining the podcast now. To delve further into the Mets fan psyche on the eve of their first World Series appearance in 15 years. Once again, from Vice Sports, David Roth. Welcome back to the show. Hi, how are you? I don't know. We're going we're gonna to try to figure that out, I think. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, do don't to, a, I don't want to say anything that makes it bad, so let's just be real. I do have a little bone, to, right pick, bone to pick with you first, though. Yes. So I wrote my, my Game 4 recap for Baseball Perspectives, which I was very happy about. I thought it was very good. And it ended up getting published two hours after Greg Prince's piece on the Mets going to the World Series and two hours before your Vice Sports piece. Oh, man. Well, which was excellent and everyone should read. I just felt, like, completely inadequate. Thanks. I I was saying, oh, man, because I didn't realize that mine had gone on the same day as Greg Prince's, which is, like, yeah. <laughs> I can't follow that. And I mean, you're also very good. You also did a good job with your pieces. Um, but yeah, when you're writing something about the Mets on the same day that Greg Prince is putting out some serious Mets feels, you kind of just have to hope that you get discovered months later when everybody's trying to read everything else that was published that day. That is, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, how did you find the experience of writing about that? Like I had a really difficult time kind of getting my, my feelings in order enough to just like actually tell the the story that needed to be told. Yeah. I mean, I get a fair amount of free reign at BP in terms of like writing quote unquote game stories. It's, they don't want gamers. So I can sort of just take a storyline or something here and there. And I don't know exactly how I, how I came upon the sort of thesis of the piece. I think it was sort of the picture of Sandy Alderson sitting alone in the stands while, uh, sort of the Mets party went on on the field. Mm-hmm. Sort of my jumping off point, sort of the stories of Terry Collins, like like wandering off into the stands with like a bottle of champagne to like spray the few Mets fans that were there, which got them in trouble with Major League Baseball. And sort of the idea of, of coming to terms with Terry Collins as the Mets manager in the playoffs and sort of all of the good and the bad that brings with it. Because I think Terry yeah. Collins, and I, you were there for his for his press conferences in the championship series. Outside of the sort of 
armchair managing we all do on our couch when he's bringing in Bobby Parnell or Hansel Robles in a close game. He's a likable guy. Yeah, and and smarter than I think I tend to give him credit for it because when you see him, I mean, so much of the, the talking that he's done in public as the Mets manager is like under extreme duress after something bad happened while surrounded by like 35 tabloid guys who are like really eager to get something from him. And he always, he has that like kind of like stressed out vice principal vibe to him. But in the actual pressers, he's certainly likable and he's way more astute than I think because he, the, all of his intelligence is like filtered through this like baseball guy, uh, like diction and approach to sort of like talking to the press so that like it doesn't always like emerge right away that like he he does in fact know what the hell he's talking about and i think we maybe sort of underplay the fact that yeah you know david wright hasn't been back since 2006 it's you know it's nine years he probably didn't know if he was gonna ever get back to the playoffs if he was gonna be able to play because of his back issue you know bartolo cologne's a guy who has never actually pitched in the world series and playing baseball professionally forever was in the majors since 1997 was on those good Indian teams and never quite made it and he wasn't on the the World Series roster for them in 97 uh Terry Collins has been playing coaching managing baseball for 62 years and had never made the playoffs right I think it, it's I mean he's you just do so, kind of appreciate yeah. how big a deal it is for him too, and he was from... so loose in like the divisional series press conferences like you really get the impression like he wants to win, but it's sort of he's playing with house money in his mind to a certain extent. Yeah. So and like, I think it, that that's like broadly, if that's something that he's been able to communicate to the team, that would explain why they seem so they're the least stressed out people in the ballpark every game. Like he seems happy. The team seems loose. Like they haven't like done any of the like they just haven't they haven't been tight since like August. It doesn't seem like that. They just don't seem like nervous the way that uh, you know i would say they maybe should be and that every mets fan that was watching them is oh my god yeah i mean it's like all of the anxiety has somehow been displaced or like drawn out of them by the process of mets fans just looking for more things to feel uncomfortable about at all times although i will say that like at the nlcs i was i mean it helped that like the team played great and that the games were never like seriously seriously in doubt games one and two like they were close but like the Mets were in command for the vast majority of the action like it was way more celebratory and way less nervous than uh than I expected it to be I watched a few innings um of the of game one with some friends that were sitting up in section 527 and it was like I mean, at that point, they were playing well, and that was, like, the inning that, that Darno homework was up there. But it was, like, there was one guy. <laughs> it was, like, the person that's, like, I was seeing Boerns. Like, there was one dude who, like, after the Mets had taken the lead, like, as the inning, uh, as, like, you know, whatever, Harvey was out there to pitch, one dude behind us was, like, don't screw this up. And it wasn't, like, he wasn't saying it for laughs or anything. Like, it was just, like that thought was in him so profoundly that it just like escaped unbidden. <laughs> like, but it was the only guy that I heard say that the whole time. I think everybody like sort of was coming to believe it as it was happening. 
which is a pretty awesome thing to watch, actually, because you can go to, a, you know, whatever decade of Mets games and not see that shit or feel it once. I, I can attest to that, certainly. Yeah, right. So this is a, a subject that is of great concern to you, something you've written about extensively in the last month or two. So perhaps you are able to lend some expertise to the subject, because I can't even write about it, think about it, podcast about it. What is going on with Daniel Murphy? Oh, boy. I mean, I have everything that I have on it is like metaphysics. Like, I don't have, like, I, there would be something very relieving if I could just be like, well, actually, he worked with Kevin Law on the inside pitch, and he's been covering that. Like, no, that's not what the fuck is happening here. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, and I have no way of understanding how long it can last or how it's happening or whatever, except for the fact that, like, it seems like this is finally maybe. And this is the the what I'm hoping for with it. Like, this would be the story that I'd love to write. That, like, all the things about Murphy that are infuriating and weird have, like, finally found a situation where they are to his benefit. Like, the fact that he constantly seems to be playing while, like, listening to, like, headphones, playing really loud, distracting music. Like, the fact that he's, like, always sort of, you know, whatever. Just, like, he's doing something else. Like, he's his mind is elsewhere. Like this is where that actually is benefiting him. Like he, cause it's like he will somehow like they're going to win the world series. And like after that last out, like he's going to have either thought that there were two outs and be surprised or he'll have like forgotten why everybody is so excited. But like, this is the moment when like the murphing that like defines him now, like actually finally redounds to his benefit after like seven years of just like, wandering off base with two outs for no reason. I remember when I was watching uh, Binghamton earlier in the year, there was a play where uh, Gavin Cicchini, one of their one of their better prospects, was playing shortstop. It was a tight game, and he got a, he got a one-hopper that came up with some weird top spin on it, came up, hit him right in the nuts. And he, like, fell over, like, in pain, but managed to, like, flip the ball to second for the force out. I think that might be like the play that ends the World Series for a Mets win, like Murph getting hit in the nuts, but somehow making the force out and then just laying yep. on the ground for twenty minutes afterwards. Yeah, it sounds like that would that would be about it. Like someone would bring him a bottle of champagne, even yeah. pour it on his head, and be fine with it. Yeah, he seems so unruffled by all of this, and so like, I mean, I guess he always seems like a pretty happy guy, right? Like that's like a thing. That, I think that's part of what like sort of can be annoying about him when he's annoying is that like. You know, like, you kind of would like it if he was a little more bothered about the fact that he, like, forgot how many outs there were in three straight innings or something like that. But, like, now he just sort of seems, like, now I don't know if it's that he expected it to happen or that, you know, whatever, or, you know, his deep faith is paying dividends or whatever the actual stories that will be written about him are. But, like, he could not seem to be enjoying himself more. He dropped the Yowzers, the second Yowzers, at the pressure that I was at, too. He, I don't think I put that. I didn't put that in the piece. It was very exciting for me to get to hear that. He was trying to carry, you know how they set up like Gatorade bottles on the press conference table? Yeah, yeah. For whatever reason, he was trying to carry all four of them at once and like bobbled one and then caught it and said, and said Yowzers to himself. And I was like, as I was leaving, he was like, I was, just, you know, I don't know what it means. I don't know why he keeps saying Yowzers. I didn't think anyone said that. 
but I feel like it's the sort of thing that we're going to be parsing for many years to come, the significance of it and all. Do you have any answers for what the hell is not going on with Daniel Murphy, or is this like too, it's still too emotional and you'd really rather move on? I mean, this sort of stuff happens. I mean, it, this sort of stuff happens. Right, you know, and Adam, it happens to Adam, players like him, yeah, too. Adam Kennedy, you know? Scott Spezio, David Eckstein, you know, gritty white middle infielders. <laughs> <laughs> There's really no other descriptor that I can come up with. Yeah. Like, if if he had a series like Alcides Escobar did for the Royals in the ALCS, where he goes, whatever it was, ridiculous batting average, 17 for 29 or something like mm-hmm. that, with a bunch of doubles, be like, oh, okay, Murph had a good couple of weeks. <laughs> he hit home runs off Clayton Kershaw twice, Zach Greinke, John Lester, and Jake Arrieta. Yep. And like, man, that, like kind like, of like frustrating like, about the fact he's still on the streak, but that like I almost wish it had just ended there. Like the idea of like, yeah, of course he hit a home run off Fernando Rodney and like yeah, yeah. whoever Kyle Hendricks or something. But if it was like if he was only hitting homers off future Hall of Famers, like that is some that's some shit. That's what I want. Like, and they're bombs. The dude. Full they were not oh yeah, lasers. Like I mean, that was one of the fun things about the. I don't think the Mets hit a home run in the entire LCS that wasn't like the sort of thing that instantly gets you off your ass and like that you're aware is going out. The Darno one that hit the apple was scorched. Like he hit that as hard as uh, Murphy hit um, the first homer, the the one he hooked to right field in that game. Like I think it was, must have been going like 109 miles an hour. But I mean, we talked about this sort of in the first segment. It's like if you had to bet on a guy, if I told you a Mets player hit like seven home runs in nine playoff games, like at what point in the list would you get down, of guesses would you get down to Daniel Murphy? I think it would depend on whether or not the Mets were actually in the playoffs. Like if you were asking me that in, in July and I was trying to come up with like the funniest answer that would be the most ridiculous possible outcome, like I think Murph would be pretty high on the list. Yeah. Like, I would have been like, Record did it, but he's shirtless, and then it's Murphy, but he like, keeps forgetting to run or something, like, something like that. Whereas, like, yeah, I mean, in this case, too, like, he had, like, a solid Murph season, but this was, like, there was nothing that he really did this year except for not strike out at a slightly higher rate that was, like, different or better. There was no indication that I could see. Maybe you have yeah. examined this more closely than me, but I didn't, like... There's no thing that, like, there's no leaf that he's turned over that suddenly turned him into fucking whatever. Try to let whatever it was he was doing. Well, I, I joked after the NL DS, like, oh, it was a really good series, but, you know, not as good as some of, like, Carlos Beltran's best series. And then he goes out and posts, like, an 1800 OPS against the Cubs. Yep. <laughs> Just, like, completely <laughs> ludicrous. And the only walk he got was, like, the Joe Madden intentional walk. He's not, like, his profile has not changed at all. Nope. Just all of a sudden, he's hitting just lasers into the bleachers. Yeah. I, you know, at this point, like, we joke about this and the emails to set these things up and everything like that. Like, I don't, I don't believe in, in jinxes, and yet I'm very careful not to do anything that could trigger a jinx in case I'm wrong about not believing in them. It just seems safer that way. But the the weirdness of what he's doing, like how he's doing it, like how decisive it is, like in some ways the the uncanniness of all of it and how like unmistakably uncanny it is has actually like done something for my 
tendency towards unbelief and anxiety where the team is concerned. Because it's so clearly beyond anything that I'm going to be able to, like, suss out if I were to decide to, like, break out 90 minutes to sit in a dark room and worry about this shit. Like, this is all beyond any projection or cognition or whatever that I've got. Like, so all I can do is just kind of chase it and watch it, which is a relief because it's like, that's the only way that I can do this and not, you know, and still enjoy myself and not get stressed out, you know? So going into the World Series, are you still sort of of the, well, this is house money mind or, or do you sort of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to be. Are you not? I I, th- I think... I talked about this a little bit on the show. I think once they went up 2-0 against the Cubs, like a switch kind of flipped for me, where it's like, mm-hmm. oh, shit, they can win the World Series this year. Right. Because, like, going into the Dodgers series, like, oh, they're, they're going to see Granke and Kershaw four times. And you know, as improved as this lineup is over what they had at the end of July, that's still a really big ask. And then they had the mm-hmm. bizarre game five against Granky with, you know, Daniel Murphy just sort of walking to third base because there was no one on third base. And then Daniel Murphy hitting a home run off Granky and, you know, Familia the, coming in and just. And then. Doing what he does. I think yeah. the base running thing, and that was when it actually maybe really occurred to me that, like, Daniel Murphy winning a game with his astute base running. Like, at that point, you're just like, all right cool, like, let's just see where this goes, because, like, that was not, that was not on the available list of prop bets. It <laughs> <laughs> was not on anybody's list of anything. But, yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the Cubs series, though, was it. I was talking to some other people when we were going down, other writer people when we were going down to the press stuff, and, like, it, we're just like, the series is not coming back here. Like, I think we're going to cover a parade. Like, people saying these things in earnest, and, like, I, you know, I sort of wanted to tell him to shut up, but mostly, like, I just laugh when I hear it. I still laugh when I hear it. Because, like, it's not like I never thought the team would be good. I just had a very difficult time, like, putting together in my head a scenario in which the team would actually be good. Like, it's all there. Like, this is what a team that could, you know, fuck around for most of the season and then turn it on and win a World Series looks like. Like, they have... the. Four terrific starters who are generally giving them a decent amount of length. They have a closer that gets everybody out. Like it doesn't even matter if the, you know the fact that they also have Daniel Murphy turning into Charlie. There, it's just like letting yourself see it without preemptively coming up with a reason why you're wrong to see it is the harder part. So, yes, July twenty second. Let me take birthday. you back for a second. The Mets lost a terrible game to the Nationals, with involved Bobby Parnell pitching with a two run lead in the eighth and giving up three runs. Oh yeah, this was the Mets lineup: Curtis Granderson in right field, Ruben Tejada at shortstop, Murphy at third, Duda at first, Flores batting fifth and second, playing second. Kirk Newenheis batting sixth and playing left, Ploiecki catching, Syndergaard pitching and batting eighth, Juan Lagares batting ninth. It was three months ago. I kind of thought Siciliani would be involved in that. I'm a little let down. <laughs> Where's Daryl? Uh, yeah, no, I. That's the thing that 
that was like the sort of deal when people, uh, it was Jesse Spector tweeted or whatever the the lineup that the Mets had, the like the last game that they lost to the Cubs, and it was like just it was hangover day for the Las Vegas team. Like it was just totally the dog's dinner. Like every like Eric Campbell's at third base and like somehow later moves to first base because he got to have his bat in the lineup but there's only two positions that he can play that badly or whatever. It's just puzzling trash. And yet, like, I mean, I remember watching those games. I watched more games with lineups like that this year than I did with ones like this. I guess that explains why it still sort of feels unnatural. But how vivid in your memory is July 22nd? Right. I mean, not that game in particular, but like I mean, that I think lineup. It's very because I think I podcasted right after that game, like in a, in a state of panic. But I went to, I went. <laughs> like, with, what am I doing with my life? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Why am I talking about the team that just ran that lineup out there? I went to a Mets Dodgers game that weekend with my father and uncle, who are both big Los Angeles Dodgers fans. Like John Nee started, and like Justin Turner hit a home run off him. And it was the same day they traded for uh, Uribe and uh, Kelly Johnson. I think it was Conforto's like first start too. I'm just watching this team and I'm like, this is just what the rest of the year is going to be like. They're going to win 83 games. And it's going to be kind of miserable in yeah. that sort of like August and September doldrum kind of way. Yeah. Part of the frustration of that too is knowing that you're going to watch anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thing, but that's definitely that. I mean, the thing that I remember about that, like, late July part of it, when it, it looked really hopeless and everybody's hurt. And, you know, there's still, like, a reason to watch. Like, the pitching was, was great, still, you know, is great, whatever. I'm going to watch it anyway because I'm a fucking idiot. But it was, like, that feeling of, like, being like, all right, well, we'll so you're just going to watch this team play like this until the weather gets cold and then you'll watch the playoffs. Like, cool cool deal that you've made with yourself there like way to just let that shit happen but like that feeling i mean that's like the last maybe three four years in total you know that like there's like little bright things to pick out of like you know moments like harvey day or whatever you know there's like a thing that you can use to justify it but like there's no excuse that i can really make for like all the times i watched nelson figueroa pitch you know like that was just a thing that i let happen to myself all right, so I'm going to ask you this. Good omen or bad omen? Pat Mish pitching the clinching game in the Taiwanese championship series and getting covered in streamers as he walks off the field. And Lasting's Millage in the uh, Nippon Professional Baseball World Series this week. There's no bad thing that could involve either of those guys. That's a very easy question. Do you have any harder <laughs> questions? That's really... I didn't realize that, it, that Mish... Was the uh, I didn't either. Like the... It showed up in my uh, on my Twitter feed. It's like this crazy picture of like Pat Mish just walking out the field, all these like teal streamers just like covering the field as he walks. I'm really happy for him. That is an extremely offense positive league, too, right? Yes. Like, should I look up what <laughs> Pat Mish's oh, ERA plus was, was in Korean baseball? I was going to try to stay off baseball reference with you because it tends to spiral out of control very quickly. I, I don't guess see we're it gonna, that way. We're going to go to Pat Mish's baseball reference page. Is what's I'm going to look very quickly. It's fine. Everybody, this is going to be like, this is like 10, 15 minutes max. <laughs> 20 minutes max. Uh... Sorry. Yeah. Um, for the record, Pat Mish's 
ERA in his last seven innings in the majors in 2011, which is his last season in the majors, was with the Mets, and it was 10.29. So I guess he he spent the first part of the season in the uh, Atlantic in AAA in the Atlantic League in Indie Ball. Oh, he was a he was a barnstormer. Yes. I mean, he has like very. It's not showing his Korean stats here. They may not. It's Taiwanese. They may not have updated that yet. I don't know if they do the Taiwanese Taiwanese league or not. Oh right, right. Um, But yeah, he spent. He had like a very Pat Mish season in the in the PCL. Yeah, he pitched great by Pat Mish standards. Like he had forty strikeouts in seventy two innings in AAA. Forty strikeouts and twenty three walks. That's the way you like it. Yeah. If you're if you're a Pat Mish fan, and I don't know anyone who isn't. Those are the sorts of numbers you're looking for. I've closed that tab. You don't need to talk about this anymore. I think it's I think it's good that that um, Mets from the sad old days are, are doing fine. I, I wish nothing but happiness to Lasting's Village. I guess I mean you you guys printed a piece of the classical sort of about Lasting's Village as like the Tokyo you cult swallows cult hero. A couple oh yeah, years a few ago. years ago. There were, I remember there being a really upsetting. Drew Avery wrote that. I remember him taking a picture of an extremely upsetting like hand drawn sign that someone had made for Lasting's Village. I mean, a few years ago, the Millage experience was a really, I mean, of all the moments of false hope for the Mets, like, that was a guy that I really, like, I thought he could have been really fun if he worked out, too. And he kind of got the same sort of, like, the Harvey treatment, except for, like, he wasn't really good enough to deserve to tell anyone to shut up, I guess, in the end. But, that like, it was, you know, a guy gets called up, he's comparatively hyped. He, like, shows a lot of personality at the beginning, and, like, people really like it. And then, like, instant backlash from the organization and teammates and, you know, tabloid press. And it, I mean, it went worse for him or whatever, but those first couple of weeks where he like hit a home run and then like high fived everybody in the yeah. stands and was just like, like that was just pretty great. I was working at tops then actually. And I remember there being like a rush order on Lasting's millage cards. Like he was being hastily added to sets and so I was like editing a new Lasting's Millage card every day, and Bruce, uh, who writes most of those cards, was like just having to constantly find new angles of like Lasting's <laughs> Millage copy. Lasting's Millage and LA Solaire were both guys that oh, were geez, like, yeah. there's like an there's an LA Solaire card in one of the sets that I worked on that's like, it's one of the scarcest cards in the set because it was like it got printed late or something. There's like some screwed up thing with it. Um, I can't imagine that it has any value at this point, but it was like one of those ones where they were like, yeah, the Solaire card now in the secondary market. Because this was like he had at that time, like when we pitched in three games and like... And one of them was like a good Sunday night baseball start or something. Right, yeah. Like he had it like in three, four, like, well, about this guy? Like what about... And this, this was like, like totally ageless man throwing 87. <laughs> it was like totally normal on those like 2006 to 2018 teams that those guys would just show up and pitch on like otherwise yeah. very good teams. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I mean, whatever, this is why we spend so much time on baseball reference here or something, that yeah. suddenly, like, wake up in a cold sweat and you're like, Rob Ross was in there for a whole season, you know, just like, everything comes flashing back. But, like, Solaire showed up as, like, top five prospect in that system and then made, like, three major league starts and then never showed up anywhere in organized baseball again. Like, it's literally yep. the most bizarre thing ever. Yeah. I don't know where he went. I hope he's all right. There is there are like it's strange too because he can definitely like wherever it is that he is he can look back and be like I pitched terrific on ESPN yeah like for a team that was like not a terrible team that was like oh seven yeah I think so the yeah. last time he popped up was in the Puerto Rican Winter League in two thousand eleven pitching to an eleven ERA oof 
I hope whatever. I hope he like opened a a restaurant somewhere or something. You know, something small plates, something nice. So I'll tell you one last stupid thing because um, this actually happened today, and I don't think it's an omen of anything, but it does sort of give you a sense of where my head is at. I uh, woke up this morning like a few minutes before my alarm was supposed to go off, like with a start, like actually like gasped, like you know, just, like it, you know, a very uncomfortable way to wake up because I had a dream that I was watching a Mets game and Juan Uribe got hit in the head. I mean, I will say throughout most of September, I was waking up at least twice a week from anxiety dreams where the Mets blew their divisional lead. <laughs> like twice a week, I clock. Not every night, but like clockwork. And I'm not a person that generally remembers in great detail the dreams I have. Yeah. But for whatever reason, these particular dreams were sticking with me. Yeah, it's it's tough because like I, you know we're both adults here, you know, like we care about the Mets, but I think that if I'm going to have an anxiety dream, like it would, it would involve like health insurance or something, you know, like it would not be about this baseball team, but there's something about the, like the way in which it's sort of like entered my consciousness moment to moment. It's, it's like, it hasn't been like this since so six. Cause I really haven't had anything good to balance the sort of mediocre stuff. And so it's just sort of been like noise in the background. I'm kind of like remembering how to care about it without fucking waking up from a dream in which one you is hit by a pitch every night. So what do we do if they win? Oh boy. Uh, I don't know. I don't really like parades much. Uh, hard to say, like get a tattoo or something. I don't know. Like it's, I, I have not, the last time that they won a, a World Series, like, I watched them do it while I was wearing, like, pajamas with feet on them. <laughs> you know? Like, I, yeah, this no. is not the thing that I'm, like, trained for, necessarily. I don't know. You know? I mean, like, there's still... I'm trying to think about it next year, and I guess that, like, that's maybe the easiest way to, to celebrate it, is to, like, take a couple weeks and not think about how they're gonna trying to not resign guys. Suspetis? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and like, and I think that like I wrote about this too in the the thing that I wrote the longer Met story that I wrote for Vice that like the you know all the noise that we make is to some extent like we're keeping that at bay, but like that's academic, you know. Like I don't want to talk about that. No one really wants to talk about that, and like you know, it's not like a novel observation either. Like it's the whole reason we care about this shit in the first place is like it's safe and it's outside of you know any of the things that actually like really touch us really make us anxious and like you know so if it's a a thing that we do for fun and yet we never really have fun doing it I think that that's like I mean at least with this team like you have a certain amount of fun but like the idea of actually like celebrating because they want a thing like it sounds good but I'm so out of practice at celebrating in general but then also at like taking my Mets fields and running around high-fiving strangers and stuff. Like, I feel like I'm going to miss a lot of high-fives. Like, I feel like I'm going to do, like, I'll, like, do the who part in a Let's Go Mets chant by accident or something. So I'm going to be off. But, like, I don't know. What do you think you're going to be able to I mean, like, how, this, this is absolutely the jinxiest possible. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, about, but, I'm over that at this point, I think, because it's just... Sure. It's so Good bizarre man. that, like, how can you even... 
So I'm not a particularly superstitious person by nature. I said before on the show that nothing I say or do here has any impact on what happens, you know, on a baseball field in in Queens or in Kansas City. It's just nothing mm-hmm. makes a difference. Oh, I agree with you. I just, it, I, like I, I said, I'm, I'm still saying, not yeah. stepping on any cracks in the sidewalk. Right, right, <laughs> yes, yeah. I do. But it's 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 the kind of thing you almost just want to watch in a dark room alone. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it. Like, I don't know what I will do. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go to a bar or anything. I mean, like, yeah. if you know, I, I do have a credential for the series, and I'm hoping that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that. Is there any way that the series could end there? Yeah, I mean, they could win in four or five. Yeah, they... I guess I haven't even allowed myself to consider this possibility. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it would be it would be interesting to be there. Um, I think it would be fun. But, yeah, man, I don't know. It does seem like the sort of thing that I'd like. I don't want to, you know, be the people like when they cut to McFadden's and there's like <laughs> all these like guys with goatees doing body shots and stuff like that. Like, it might surprise you to know that I'm not. It's not really how I get down. But, like, yeah, I also do feel weird that it's like the sort of thing that we, our personalities being similar in this way aside, it does seem like a strange thing. You're just like, well, if the Mets win the World Series, like, I want to be someplace really quiet by myself. I mean, I really just think I'm going to start crying, like, in a completely, yeah. like, I'm just going to start weeping openly is what's going to happen. I had that feeling at the games that I was at in the LCS, and those were not clinchers, where it would yeah. be like, I would have to get up and leave the press box periodically just to, like, clear my head and to sort of, like, take a couple of deep breaths of, of actual air. Like, the, I don't mean, it's not even, like, anxiety even, or, like, I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm just sort of, like, you know, I'm 37. Like, there's some things that I haven't done before, but there's also, like, uh, most things having to do with baseball games and being at them and thinking about them or whatever, like, I have done. And this is stuff where, like, I really didn't feel like I was on territory that I was familiar with and it's like it's a little weird like yeah yeah the possibility that you could start crying because a baseball game just ended one way or another is like that's not been a real thing in my life in since I was you know whatever wearing footy pajamas and yeah so like that's a that's a whole lot to consider for sure All right, well, I think yeah go ahead I was gonna say if you start crying because the Mets won the World Series I, I, I think that as long as you're not around people who will judge you for it, and I'm sure you won't be, then you don't. There's no reason why you need to be in the closet listening to the TV audio from the room next door or something like that. I'll let you go on this. What is your ideal Bartolo Colon World Series moment? Oh, boy. Um, all right, so I'll just get as a... I mean, the, the ideal is that he hits. Yeah, I mean, that was got, the thing. because he's come in for long relief on multiple occasions now, and they pinch hit for him every time. Yeah, and there was one, I don't remember the exact scenario, in Chicago, I think, where it really looked like I was like, it would be sensible to have him hit here, like, which is obviously stupid, and <laughs> I was talking myself into it, but like, where I was like, it could happen, like this could be the, the thing. So like the ideal, I guess, would be him hitting a single that drives in a run and carrying the bat all the way to first base. <laughs> But I would take I would take a, a three ending save for sure. Like I was hoping that he'd get one of those in uh, <laughs> in in the LCS. 
he's been. I, I have this feeling he could pitch out of the bullpen until he's like sixty. He does have sort of that like Satchel Page kind of vibe to him. Yeah, he just and it's like he barely breaks a sweat starting either, but he just like comes in and throws his pitch exactly where he wants it. And like if you you only ask him to do one inning of that, like it, I mean, it could be bad. He might step back from his conditioning regimen somewhat. But like, yeah, I don't see anything that says he couldn't do this. This is. I'll actually make this the last thing as a example of where people's brains are. So I was talking to my father earlier who is a Mets fan. He's also a guy that, um, he's been normal for a living for so long in his life. I think that like the inner weirdness in him like now comes through extremely clearly, uh, in personal conversation. Like he no longer really makes transitions or segues or anything like that. So he was telling me, uh, that my friend, uh, Stephen Del Percio, I'll name him, uh, that his wife is pregnant again with the sec- their second child, which is great. So he started to sentence telling me that. I don't know if he knew that. Steve and Allison are pregnant again. Do you, and like, I'm still trying to figure out how he did it because it, there was not a period, there was not an ellipsis or a semicolon. From this thought, he pivoted into the idea, do you think the Mets are going to bring back Bartolo Colon next year possibly as a bullpen option? And I don't know what it was. Maybe it was an M dash, but I think it was it was either a comma or there was nothing there at all, and it was just like some James Joycean, like just pure words. But like that's, I think where, really where you know I am with the facts in general. That like I'll begin a normal thought, and somehow it finishes with Bartolo Colon coming back to pitch, on a, you know, whatever three more years in the seventh inning. But yeah, it's good to be stupid this way. I like it. <laughs> it feels better than usual. David Roth from Vice Sports, thanks for coming on. And win or lose, we'll have you back on to delve deeper into this never-ending saga of Mets fandom. Right on, man. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, this is an amazing thing to even be talking about. So yeah, cool. Thanks. Welcome back. Now it's time for your emails. And before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 152. Sources with knowledge of the podcast. Thinking will tell you that this is our World Series preview. Yes, it is. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation, New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at amazingavenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue, and join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue. You find the podcast on iTunes, search for Amazing Avenue Audio, and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can find the podcast on the Stitcher app, download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash Amazing Avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Greg Karam. You can follow him on Twitter at Greg Karam. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And our first email is from Jason. It is clear It is clear now that Daniel Murphy was the subject of a Manchurian candidate-style brainwashing effort 
What do you guys think was the signal that activated Murph to begin this rampant home run tear? What did TC whisper in his ear? Excellent show. Keep up the great work. Let's go, Mets. All right, what was the code that activated sleeper agent Daniel Murphy, Greg Karam? <laughs> Apparently it was a Clayton Kershaw fastball right over to the heart of the plate in L.A. I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, he was, was hitting he was hitting cleanup in that game. Yeah. But they moved him to the three-hole afterwards. Oh, And I think one. putting him in the third spot for the playoffs I'm did Daniel it. Murphy. There is more. Yes, third. it's a secret code. We just didn't yes. think anything of it. But I'm Daniel Murphy, and I bat third was like, yes. There's that was more, the key to unlocking it all these years. There's more to that than we could have possibly. Keith Hernandez knew. He had to like subtly, not so subtly, but subtly put it into the broadcast. <laughs> like he's the Warren Beatty character. He knows. He knows what was uh, what was really going on there. Our next email is from Josh. Hi, Amazing Avenue Audio hosts. I am impressed with I am I am impressed with the way the Mets rookie pitchers pitched in the NLCS. I knew they were good, but I, they look outstanding. I thought the bats of the Cubs rookies were going to kill the Mets rookie pitching, but I guess I was wrong. I really liked Degrom and Mats, as do we all. I never knew how well those two pitched. I hope for people that are diehard fans of the Mets that they signed Daniel Murphy to a long-term deal. Well, Greg Karam is on board with that and has been for years. So years. The Mets should <laughs> sign him to a five to seven-year deal worth $125 million. My first favorite team is the New York Yankees. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> and this season was a big bust. The Yankees need to develop young pitchers just like the Mets did. My second favorite team is the Cubs. But now that the Mets crushed the Cubs to go to the World Series, I am rooting for the Mets. Is that weird since I like the Cubs to beat either the Royals or the Blue Jays in the World Series? I'm not going to tell you how to be a fan. But there's plenty of room on the bandwagon. I have a few questions to ask. And we'll take this as we do, we'll treat it as quick hits. One, do you think the Mets pitching will hold up? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, look, they there might be a bad start in there. I, mean, I think they're at this point pitching to probably well under a 3.0 ERA as a squad. Going yep. into this series, you know, there might be a game where somebody gets lit up. It's certainly possible. But I think they're really good. We have a lot of evidence that they're really good that goes beyond the last nine games of Mets baseball. You know, this was the, the model that Alderson and company wanted to use, and it's worked. Two, do you think Daniel Murphy will hit a home run in the World Series? Why the fuck not? Of course. Probably more than one, because I don't know anything <laughs> yeah, about baseball I was anymore. Say, do, you th- do I think he's going to hit multiple home runs? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Three, do you think Lucas Duda will keep hitting the way he did in game four of the NLCS? I think he'll keep, he'll keep hitting. I think he'll hit better than he did throughout the the entire playoffs. I don't know if he's going to continue hitting a home run and a double, a couple doubles every game. Yeah. I think, I do think it's a good matchup for Duda. Uh, you know, Cueto is a righty, like, change-up guy, maybe not so much, but the other arms, I think he'll be fine. I can see him hitting just like a ridiculous home run over the Shea Bridge against Chris Young in Game Four, something like that. Yeah, like Mark Reynolds esque. <laughs> yes. Four. Do you think Terry Collins will get a new contract? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I'm gonna tap the brakes here for a second. Oh come on! I don't. I think so. 
If they what? win the World Series, you think he's going to hang it up? I would not be shocked if he hangs it up. If right. you look at the arc of his career, go back and read the Mark Craig piece, which is excellent. You should have read it anyway. But go yeah. back and read it again. You know, he's in his late 60s. He's talking about spending more time with the grandkids. If he goes out as the World Series winning manager for the Mets, why not? He can come back in spring as a you know a special instructor. He can do some freelance field stuff for them in the minor league level if he wants here and there. He can punch his own ticket. He goes into the Mets Hall of Fame probably, <laughs> which would have think about us saying that six months ago. Yeah, I think he he will want to uh, stick around a little bit, just kind of enjoy being a World Series winning manager. And I think he might stick around as. For at least a couple of years, at least to uh, you know, while this core is still there, I mean, that's you know, a, starting pitching. That may very well happen. I think they're. Uh, I don't know who they're grooming as the replacement. If they win a World Series, everything changes. You know, Collins gets to sort of do what he wants to do. Alderson probably gets to pick his successor. Again, there'll be plenty of time for this in the off season. There's one more hurdle to go first. I think if they lose, yeah, he probably comes back and takes another shot at it. And I don't know if that ends well or not. I hope it does. I hope they win the fucking World Series first, though. <laughs> Five, what happened to Suspedis' shoulder? Too many push-ups. Too many. <laughs> Too many push-ups. I mean, the golf thing was always going to be a story, but here's the thing. Everybody golfs. Pitchers. Fucking minor league pitchers. Every off day, go out golfing. I swear to God, it's on my Twitter feed constantly. I now, love golf. Yeah, I'm. Do do normal baseball players go golfing before Game Four of the NLCS? They try to sneak eighteen holes in in the morning. No, but that's why we love Yoannis Cespedes because <laughs> <laughs> he's just gonna go out. I, I in my head, he goes out like in the full like Payne Stewart like knickers and hat too. I mean, he had to get up on. Uh, you, yeah, you saw the picture. Yeah. Six, who do you think is going to be the 2015 MVP of the World Series? Thanks, Josh from New Jersey. Matt Harvey. Matt Harvey. Matt fucking Harvey. Big wins in game one and five. And then a relief appearance maybe in game seven, even though they're going to win at six. Okay. (laughs) Um, So... I feel like for consistency's sake, I have to take future playoff hero Wilmer Flores. Oh, God. <laughs> but I'm actually going to go with J.R. Similia. Okay. I think they're going to play a lot of close games. And if they do win, I think he'll save at least three of them. And he'll get sort of the, you've been really good throughout the entire playoffs and save some big games in the World Series award. Yeah. That happens when it's a bit of a team effort. Yeah. Our next email is from Daykim. First, let me thank you for the podcast. I started listening this year and have thoroughly enjoyed them. Now let me get to the point. The ownership and Sandy need to bring back not only Murph and he spells it as Sexpedus, which I'm <laughs> fine with. I don't I, I can't really argue that there's an autocorrect here. <laughs> <laughs> this seems intentional. So it has to be intentional, but that's fine. But Uribe Cologne and Kelly Johnson. 
The money for these secondary but essential players will most likely not cost much. It will be huge for the clubhouse. Look, I'm fine with them bringing Yuri Bay and Cologne back. I think I've said on the podcast before. Kelly Johnson, sure, why not? Um, you know, having a more veteran bench, given the money that's coming off. It'd be great. Yeah, from guys like... You know, no more Danny Mono and Eric Campbell. I mean, there's more to this email. I keep reading. Yeah, now yeah. for Murph. I think a, contact, a contract similar to Chase Headley would be pre- plenty fair for not only his prime four years, but also David Wright, Sexpedus, Duda, Ligaris, Pitchers, etc. I would do it. His flexibility on the field would be huge as well. Is it likely for someone to give that type of money for him while also giving up a first-round draft pick? I doubt it. Never bet against the Colorado Rockies doing something weird. Is my general uh, ethos here. Normally, I would say like that you could be like a perfect San Francisco Giant, but I think they're pretty well committed to to Duffy at third, oh, yeah, so yeah. that limits their be. flexibility there to find a spot for Daniel Murphy. Yeah, I mean, look, third base is probably his his better position. Uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we'll get to that. I'll finish reading this yeah, email because it yeah. keeps going. Yeah, yeah. As for as for Metspidus, <laughs> I don't know what comp you can make with this contract, but I'd be willing to give him at least 150 for six years. Oh, you're going to have to. I mean, if you want to sign him, that's going to be probably below the baseline. What he does for this team cannot be overstated. We don't have any big right-handed bats, not even the pipe, even in the pipeline, as far as I know. I'm racking my brain, but I think you're right. Nemo might end up being good, but you shouldn't take over for Grandy after his con- contract expires. Also, we were to look at free agents when we have to give up a first-round pick just to pick up someone who we hope can be as good as Sexpedus. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it that way. I have no problem doing that. I love it. Despite the rumors about him being a bad clubhouse guy, which were bullshit, I think I've heard he seems to be a great fit. Uribe and Cologne probably help. Uribe and Cologne help everything in terms of massaging that. If we can sign these guys back, we can start a Mets dynasty on the elbows of our young pitchers and the backs of our now big-name bats. All we need is a bullpen. I'm done with Clifford. But fam- <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> but familiar and read are the starting points, and we need some big arms. And before I end this email, watching this team has been a joy. What's great is that so many of these guys went up in the system together and developed together and are winning together. So many of them seem to be friends like Lagaris and Flores and DeGrom and Mats, and they want to be here. It's been an un- Believable ride. It's from Day, who is at Day Today, D A Y T O D A E on Twitter. Hashtag Let's Go Mets. Hashtag I want it all. P.S. How bad is Schwarber out there? P.P.S. How good does Solaire look? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, there's a lot of off-season stuff there. It's there is be a fascinating off-season. It is going to be a fascinating off-season. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. But okay. Um, my concern. I will say as a Mets fan, is that they sign Murphy to that Chase Headley type deal in lieu of going after Cespedes hard. Yeah. Because they feel signing playoff hero Daniel Murphy will sort of give them cover for not giving Cespedes a, a godfather type offer. They should be able to sign both. And I'm not opposed to signing Murphy. You don't know what you're getting out of David Wright next year. You don't know what you're getting out of Dilson Herrera next year. That's the reality of the situation. Yeah, that's that's been my argument for since April. But and it, you I, know, I, it, I do 
I do think that the price has gone up. I mean, you have to give him a QO. On I, I think that he's played his way into a QO, which I don't think is necessarily the case uh, in the beginning of July of this year. Yeah. I mean, you roll the numbers in. I have my concerns about how he ages. He's a second baseman. He's a quote-unquote second baseman. Um, <laughs> if he loses a bit of bat speed, you know, what does that look like? But you roll his playoff numbers into his season. We're talking about a guy who's slugging almost 500. These games still count. Yeah. I don't think... You know, if this was a nine-game hot streak like this in July, we'd just roll it into the season. Or into the stats when looking at what he may be deserves for a, a free agent contract. I don't know why we should not do that now. I can't come up with a good reason not to. It's going to get overblown because of the leverage of this performance. Which is fine. But you know, yeah, get a hundred years. It's gonna be he's gonna be a very fascinating free agent. He is. Case. Um, and like Murph's such a weird dude. I have no fucking idea what he might resign here for. Like, if you told me Murph would resign for three thirty six right now, it would not shock me. Because yeah. he's just I a mean, weird that, dude. That wouldn't have shocked me in August. I, I don't think it would shock me now. It's the thing. It's like he's just – yeah, I know. Maybe this is some naivete on my point, on my part, where some of the things he said in the in the press is just smart PR. I think he legitimately likes playing for this team in New York. And I yeah. don't think he's going to chase money. No, he's well. Look, he's got he's you know he has different priorities. He has he has faith and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think he's just happy where he is and what he's doing. So I do think that if there's anybody out there who would take a below market deal to be in the right place, it'd be Murph. And I think with everything that's happened, there's some loyalty he feels to the organization, like above and beyond what other guys might. You know, after he missed that full season after the takeout slide in AAA. A couple injuries. Yeah, I mean, they've really stuck with him. And, and a lot of that's been out of necessity more than anything else. But, you know, does that register with him? I don't know. Like, I don't know what this deal looks like. I mean, 456 probably gets it done. That's what I would have guessed before this whole playoff thing. I don't think you can give him more than that, though. I know, I know. I, I feel like somebody will give him five years. By baseball reference, he hasn't had a two-win season in five years. And he's a legitimately bad defender up the middle. Yeah. He can hit. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from Murph. I don't think he's suddenly a, a 25 home run a year guy now, though. It's tough. The Murph magic, man. You know, I'm as... As much as I say I'm not the most sabermetrically inclined person the writes for Amazing Avenue, which I think is true. You know, I'm, I'm, I understand what small sample madness can look like. 
you know, we saw Lucas Duda hit, what was it, nine home runs in eight games or whatever mm-hmm. at the end of July. This stuff can happen. Murph especially, who's ridiculously streaky. It generally takes, you know, more the form of like an Alcides Escobar type ALCS where he just hits 570 for a week. I mean, he did hit 570 for a week. It was like 530. <laughs> but he had four home runs in there and a couple doubles. It's like, you know, maybe there is something to what Kevin Long did to him. And I keep coming back to the Justin Turner thing where like a late season swing change. I mean, this happens. It does. Is it happening with Murph? I don't know. I don't know what to give him. Cespedes, I'll just write a blank check. I don't give a shit. Because he, he fixes everything. You can play him in center against righties, left against lefties. I mean, really, you can get Ligaris' surgery if you want. I don't know what the situation is there. And play Cespedes every day in center field and take your chances. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's going to be expensive, but he's a great fit for this team. If they can go, there's no reason they can't go 125 million payroll next year. In which case, they should be able to afford both Murph and Cespedes. Now, does that happen? I don't know. And there'll be plenty of time in the offseason to discuss it. Before we move on, though, Kyle Schwarber in left field. Let's talk about that for a second. Not good. Look, you know, I, because of my current job, I can't really get into depth on the Schwarber versus Conforto thing. (laughs) Can I? (laughs) You can if you want to, Greg Karam. I'm just going to sit here and sip the rest of my drink. You can say whatever you want now. No, it's just it's it's funny. I mean, there there is some very uh, choose the word stubborn. You can go thick headed uh, people out there, you know, who still who still still think the Cubs are are the better team, and, and actually think that every team could have a Michael Conforto on their team, while also thinking that Kyle Schwarber is uh, like the next coming of Babe Ruth or something. But uh, as we saw in that series. It's going to be tough uh, to play him in the field because he looked like uh, Lucas Duda in left field when that was an experiment that was happening. So, yeah. I'm going to uh, reach deep into the archives here and quote quote one of my favorite political thinkers, uh, Francis Urquhart from the original Game of Thrones in Britain. You might think that I couldn't possibly comment. (laughs) I will say this, though, um, and I did tweet this out. Kyle Schwarber plays corner outfield like a catcher that should really be a first baseman. (laughs) I like like Jorge Soler a lot. I think the Cubs are going to trade him. I will say that. Our next email... Yeah, good. Our next email is from the non-pseudonymous JJ Mack. Holy shit, Jeffrey and co-hosts. Holy shit, the Mets are in the World Series. (laughs) Yes, JJ. It's making me think goofy thoughts about the World Series roster and designated hitter. 
considering how few relievers have been used thus far in the playoffs, can a case be made to include Eric Young Jr. on the World Series roster at the expense of Eric of say Sean Gilmartin? Yes, but here's my here's my quandary with that. What is the argument for Eric Young Jr. on the roster over Juan Lagares? What does he do better than Juan Lagares? Is he that much faster than Juan Lagares anymore? Is he a more efficient base dealer than Juan Lagares? He might be. I just don't have a strong uh, opinion on this. Well, he's going to be redundant because, I mean, depending on how you construct the roster for these games in the, uh, well, you're against the Royals in a right-hand pitching. I mean, it doesn't seem likely that Lagares is going to be starting. So in that case, you know, where does, where would Eric Young fit over Lagares in that situation? And given all the nice things I said about Terry Collins earlier, I will uh, put this little turd in the punch bowl. I don't want Terry Collins having access to Eric Young Jr. in the World Series. <laughs> That's uh, I, I said that before, right? You don't, you don't want to give him those toys. You can't give him the toys. And an even goofier thought, defense could be a deciding factor in so small a sample, especially if the AL representative is a contact-oriented Kansas City Royals. It is, and I'm nervous too, J.J., and since the Mets pitchers aren't total black holes with a bat, the idea occurred to me that during the AL Park games, the Mets could run Matt Reynolds out at shortstop and Wilmer Flores is DH while leaving the pitcher in to hit. Wait, why? I don't think you could do that. No. It doesn't work that way. It just as quickly occurred to me that they, this can't yeah. possibly make sense considering Matt Reynolds isn't really a shortstop. Well, you hit on one of the problems. But it did make me wonder in the abstract how much of a defensive upgrade at a key position would warrant the offensive downgrade of hitting the Mets starters versus, say, Kelly Johnson or Juan Uribe if healthy, or how much better the Mets pitchers would have to be as hitters to similarly justify such a move. Holy shit, the Mets are in the World Series. Excelsior. JJ. So. I'm so confused. I'm very confused, too. Um, I mean... So, a thought experiment. In an AL park, this probably makes more sense in an NL park, but in any park, is the defensive upgrade, given the Royals' contact ability, of playing Luis Guillorme at shortstop and batting him ninth? Oh my god. <laughs> Knowing that you can DH, say, Flores or Kelly Johnson. Worth it in a seven-game series. No. 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 No, because, I mean, Guillaume, fine. But Flores, Guillaume is going to be a zero with the bat. Flores is a major league competent hitter. There's a huge gap there. In a seven-game seven series, is the run differential enough between Wilmer Flores and Luigi Orme offensively to make up the difference defensively? I think so. I mean, you would assume if it's true over 162 games, it's true over seven, essentially, is what it comes down to. 
and I, mean, I and I love Louis. I I was on board with Louis Guillaume taking Matt Reynolds' spot. I will say that because it was considered internally by Mets people. I think I can say that. Can you? <laughs> I can't. I, it's six ounces of Evan Williams in this whiskey sour, so I'm saying it. <laughs> but it was considered, um, and I would have been fine with it in that spot. Because again, you're only really making that move in an emergency. And Guillaume is that good at shortstop. Would you take Peak Ray Ordonez over Wilmer Flores as your number nine hitter in this series? Um, yeah, I guess so. I I would too, and Guillaume for me just isn't at that level because of the arm. If Guillaume had Ray Ordonez's arm, if Guillaume had... Uh, Francisco Lindor's arm. He would be the best shortstop I've ever personally scouted. And it wouldn't be all that close. But well, yeah, I mean and I mean Ordonia's you know, I guess he could put the ball in play is the kindest thing you could say about his offense. But look, there's a chance that Wilmer Flores could go out and hit two home runs in this series. It is I'm yeah. future playoff hero Wilmer Flores. I'm banking on it, Greg. So I'll take that chance, you know, over a plus glove most days, unless it's rare during this, in which case. I mean, they're punting defense in so many spots right now going into this series that I can't get super excited about Romar Flores playing shortstop. That's where we are right now. I know. Shortstop Avenue Audio. I'm just riding the wave. It's all good. My last email is from Ben. Salutations, Jeff and co-host. I have a dilemma you might like to consider in your World Series exclamation point preview. I moved from the UK to New York in 2004. I started to follow the Mets after 2006. I bought Sunday season tickets. So I was there when Tom Glavin gave up seven earned runs in one third of an inning. I was there drinking Jack and Coke after Jack and Coke at my local bar in Newington. I was there when ESPN shifted Levon Hernandez starts the Sunday night baseball, ensuring I wouldn't get home before 1 a.m. I was even there in St. Louis for the 19-inning game, I think it was 20, if I recall correctly, where Pelf got the save. In short, I suffered through Thin and Thin and Marlon Anderson. However, at the same time, I met the woman who became my wife. We had kids and had to leave New York. We are now in Zurich, Switzerland. The question is, should I fly back to New York to watch the World Series? Is it worth flying back just to watch a couple games in the bar? Or is it worthwhile to go to City Field? My wife is a Cardinals fan who was at Bush Stadium when they won in 2006 before we met. So I don't feel too guilty leaving her to do all kid-related duties for a couple of days. What would you do, Ben? YOLO, man. <laughs> You got to go to the games, man. I mean, you never know if it ever happens again. It might not. You got to got to live in the moment. You got to go to the games. You got to go. I mean, you're more than welcome to come to the uh, Blarney Rock in Midtown and watch it with us. But you got to go to City Field. There's no way around it. <laughs> Sorry, man. The Mets are in the World <laughs> Series. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Yeah. 
just doesn't happen every day. It doesn't. Buy the tickets now, probably. You're in Switzerland. This probably won't go up until Monday morning. But you still got plenty of time. Fly standby. I don't think it matters. I mean, worst comes to worst, you can walk from LaGuardia, really, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't really need a hotel. Yeah. It's, I don't, it's, I mean, Mets are in the World Series. You gotta be there. Yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. You have any uh, sound advice, Greg Karam? <laughs> Do it, man. Let me, just, let me just take a peek at what the StubHub prices are right now. I've been keeping track. So the standing room only tickets are holding steady at about like 480, 490. I think it'll probably come down to around 400 by game time for 3, 4, I'm and surprised. Five. Yeah. Things things tend to come down as you get closer to the event. So, But I don't know and how They're low, not going to be cheap. And, and the amount of tickets that are on there is not really that high compared yeah. to the LCS. So I'm not sure how much it's going to come down. I don't know. The Euro is only like $1.10 now, too. I feel like that's, that's not good. That's not good for our friend for Eric. our friends in Zurich, yeah. Um, that said, I mean, Mets are in the World Series. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah, if you can afford it, you got to do it. You got to do it. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenue dot com. Since this is a more formal podcast than what we've been doing, I feel like it is time for an IFK Gothenburg update. Okay. So, Gothenburg still currently third in the all Spence game behind AIK and IFK North Shoping. They had a chance to go top of the table last weekend. Drew a late penalty when they were up 2-1 after coming down from 1-0. Against Jugarden. North Shoping won their game today on Sunday. Setting up a game against AIK in Stockholm. Tomorrow at 2 Eastern Standard Time. Which is a must win for our Blue and White Angels. They want to stay in the Allsvenskan race. It's getting very dicey. A chance to go top. Could not hold out. But I hold out hope. For the... uh, Gothenburg, New York Mets double. Mm. It could still happen, Greg. I'll take half of it, though. <laughs> You're not as invested as I am in. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm IFK Gothenburg. Right? All right, fair enough. I will say that uh, we do have Game One of the World Series. Are you going to be at uh, the Blonnie Rock for that, Greg Karam? I will be there. Either game one or game two. You should come out for game one, because I'm there anyway for uh, Wednesday against Arsenal. All right, you're going there game one. All right, so then I'll I'll be there game one. So Greg and I will both be there for game one. Okay. Matt Harvey (laughs) on the mound. I'm I'm now committing Greg to this. I've got the 345 kickoff in the League Cup on Tuesday for Arsenal against Sheffield Wednesday. And I can literally just walk down the street unsteadily at that point, probably, to... uh, the Blarney Rock. 
I'm excited. You, um, you're dedicated. It worked out well for me, too, because the Friday night game, they just added uh, Wednesday against Nottingham Forest to TV for Saturday morning. I was staying over anyway, so. Everything's coming up Millhouse. I don't know that I have anything else. Uh, we'll be on the Royals Review podcast, apparently. Yeah. That's the thing that's happening. We're recording that later tonight. I should probably stop drinking or keep drinking. Only time will tell. <laughs> so look for that. That's the uh, SB Nation Royal site. Sometime early next week. This week. It's Sunday. This is the same week. I think it might be time to wrap up the podcast now. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we will see you for our Game 1 World Series recap. I can't believe it either. Late Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning, more likely, on Amazing Avenue Audio.